Hello and welcome to the Scene Magazine podcast. My name's Alex Kleinberg and today I'm joined by Sue Tilly, artist, best mate of Lee Bowery, who we're going to be talking about today, and muse to Lucian Freud. Lucian painted Sue in the mid-90s and that painting, Benefits Supervisor Sleeping, went on to become the most expensive painting ever sold at auction by a living artist. So if we rewind 20 years to the debut performance of Boy George's musical Taboo, what did you think when you first saw it? Because it brought to life a period in London's history that you were very much a part of. Oh, I was very excited. I couldn't even believe I was in it, to be honest. But, um, yeah, what I think I think I maybe went to a read-through, but I didn't really get what was going on. And then I went to, like, a dress rehearsal or something, I couldn't believe it. I was thrilled. It was so marvellous. So if we do do another big rewind and then maybe come back to Taboo. So if we go going back to the early 80s, how did you meet Lee Bowery? Well, I'd gone to, at the back of heaven then, there was a club called Cha Cha's and you had to go round the back down this dirty old alley to get in. And I was friends with Stephen Luscombe from Blamange bizarrely and he said oh you must come to this club you'll really love it it's fantastic and so I went there and my eyes fell on Lee Bowery and he wasn't dressed freaky then he was just dressed like everyone else I mean I suppose other people would say he was freaky but it was just everyone I knew dressed he had such a lovely cheery face (laughs) that um we just started talking and that was it we were friends forever and did you get the sense he was destined for great things um not really well, a little bit, but I never imagined he'd become like as famous and as special as he was. Um, you know, he was always had plans. He, wa- he wanted world domination. No, I didn't even know he was Australian to start with because he covered up his Australian accent and put on the usual London accent. And then suddenly I was walking along the road with him. And I thought, he sounds a bit Australian. He went, oh, you've got my secret. He didn't really want people to know because he was ashamed. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> in terms of like the evolution of his look, so you know, you said that it wasn't fully formed at that stage. Like, at what point? Like, how many years after that did all of a sudden? This it was look... about a year, if that really, because he invented this fashion look. Because he lived near Brick Lane, and so he was very influenced by the world of Asian culture and um, Indian people and that way they dressed. And there was all the dress shops down, cloak fabric shops down Brick Lane selling really cheap, tacky fabric. And so that's where he got his inspiration from. So he designed this look, but, you know, you can't really say it now, but... Ah, we're living in a more puritanical time, so we're going to have to beat that bit out, folks. I am terribly sorry. I want it for me. So he started wearing it as well. And his other flatmate, David Walls, and another friend. And I imagine when he's making these looks, he's not doing it with much of a budget behind him. Goodness no, like some of the fabric was probably like a 50p a metre or a yard as it was then. Um, yeah, the, his fabric was really cheap. So unfortunately, sometimes when he made you things, it, he made me a lovely dress with um, gauze in it. But because it cut on the bias and the fabric was so cheap, it all sort of drooped and it ended up dragging on the floor behind me because the material was so cheap, it didn't hold its shape. And also very nasty if a cigarette got near them. Up they go in flames because they were so synthetic. So, so really, what he did, go to the shop, find some fabric, and then make the outfit to suit the fabric, if you know what I mean. 
Yeah. So, so is he having dreams at this stage of being a fashion designer, a club promoter, like everything, anything that make him world famous? But the worry, well, we'll get on to later. But he got famous for lots of things, but it wasn't really of his own accord, which annoyed him somewhat because he was like, like when he worked for Michael Clark, the he didn't really family. like. It. Yeah, he wasn't in charge. Try to be. <laughs> so in his quest for world domination, he starts the club night taboo. How did that happen? This person called Tony Gordon, who was also like on the club scene, found the club. And it was just a club in um, Leicester Square that I don't think anyone ever went to. You know, no, I'd never been there before. I don't think anyone had. And it was probably, you know, just an out of town as disco. I don't know. And then... So this Tony Gordon arranged it and then asked Lee if he'd like to host it with him. And, of course, Lee took over and, you know, took charge and made it out it was all his. Um, but so it was just one night a week. But, you know, the doorman and the bar staff and the manager were all, like, people owned, employed by the club, not employed by Lee. Absolutely. And it develops reputation, still has a reputation all these years later for being, like, quite hedonistic and quite wild in there. Is that a fair assessment? Yes. <laughs> you could do whatever you wanted, really. You go down the stairs and sort of, then suddenly it was like a wild playground of misbehaviour. I mean, I was very naughty. I took my brother there when he was 11. I dressed him up to try and look a bit older. And he came down the stairs and he went, oh, it's like Ali Baba's cave. <laughs> That's what I like to call it. But... You know, to be honest, there's all the talk of the drug taking and all that, but I think I'm a bit daft because I never really noticed it. I know people are off their faces, but I didn't know they were taking heroin in the toilets. I suppose that you just find those things if you want to find them, don't you? Yeah, and were you um, working at the job centre by this point? Oh, yes. Oh, I'd, yes, but it was hilarious because sometimes people in the job centre might come down with me, but not often. So I had this bizarre life, but it crossed over a bit because a lot of people who went to the booth came and signed on at the job centre. So we'd have a little chat, you know. And was it through Michael Clark initially that Lee actually started to become famous and live out his fantasy? I think so, yeah, because originally it was Michael just um, employed him to do the costumes. But of course, Lee had to get on the stage. And he's very good at, you know, he was a big fella, but he was really good at learning things. And he'd really, really try hard. You know, so he'd really persevere so he could do the dancing and ended up looking fantastic. Yeah, and he started a band called Minty as well, and that kind of, like, overlapped with his performance art. And so I remember watching the documentary about him that, that you were in as well, and uh, some of the footage of those performances that he did was so out there by any standard, but just so entertaining and so clever. But done so well. But then always something went a little bit wrong. <laughs> Like the time, have you heard, the, you're talking about the performance at the fridge when um, he oh decided God. to have an enema. An enema. He put, oh, right. He put enema um, Then he had to go on um, my friend Bailey Walsh's shoulders to be carried onto the stage, then turn around and just squirted all the liquid out at the audience. But it was just me. He didn't realise that when you put the water up, it would bring something else down with it. He thought it would be a shower of crystal clear water. Unfortunately, it wasn't. <laughs> and then there was a letter of complaint in some gay magazine saying it was signed 
It was meant to be from two lesbians. They were horrified, but Lee wrote it himself. He was following in the path of Joe Alton, writing letters complaining. <laughs> oh, my God, that's amazing. So it, part of his kind of spirit, his energy, was that he was maybe a prankster, a trickster, do you think? Oh, such a joker. Anything he could do to entertain you with a, tra- a trick. Like if you, if you go around his house, you'd ring the bell, doors open, he couldn't see anyone, and then he was lying on the floor at the door so he'd trip over him and pretend that someone else was on the phone and have long conversations with them. There was no one there. And he'd just tell terrible lies, just really to entertain, not for, not, not for maliciousness, just for your entertainment. But all this stuff that you're describing and, you know, you see it all in the documentary and you wrote about it in your book, it's, it's almost like he's kind of anticipating, it's almost like he would have fit in perfectly with the age of Instagram, social media and everything. I know! He'd be perfect, wouldn't he? He might explode through the attention. God, all the likes and comments. What age was he when he died? 34? It's nothing, is it, 33? Nothing at all. I know, and to think of everything but, but, he achieved. I know, he did so much, really, didn't he, in that little time? And even like Trojan, he was 20 when he died, and he's still got little memories. But because he really, before he found out he had AIDS, he'd have a couple of days a week where he's so hungry, he'd just lie on the sofa and do nothing, you know. And we'd just lie on the phone chatting, go, uh, we feel so ill. And then after he found out that he was ill, he never did that. Every day he worked doing something, creating something, making something, because he knew he didn't have time left to um, achieve what he wanted to. Do you think that in his lifetime he kind of got the credit he deserved for that, or was that after he died that he got the credit? Well, he got the credit through attention, but he never had any money or anything, you know. But it depends, as he said himself, you shouldn't judge life by money. You should judge it by what you've achieved and your experiences. And he found it rather vulgar when people, there's a, when he's on an Irish chat show, I think, and he was talking about performance art, and people go, ah, you know, how do you make a living? He goes, it's not important about that. It's just doing it that's important. But, you know, he got plenty of attention when he was alive, but even more now. But things were different then. I don't, you know, he went taken abroad, taken on trips. You know, he was always doing something. Just to get moving forward to kind of your own emergence as an artist, um, did that really begin when you met Lucian Freud through Lee Bowery? No. <laughs> now, I did train to be an art teacher. And then, you know, I started working for Lucian. And then I'd just forgotten about drawing, really. And then there was an exhibition at the National Portrait Gallery of all Lucian's works. And they wanted me to model. And they said, oh, we've got an artist. He's going to draw you, you know. So I met this man who did art classes. And funny enough, I lived in Bethnal Green at the time. And he did art classes opposite me. So I went to one of them and I thought, oh, my goodness, I can still draw. Because I hadn't drawn anything for years and I forgot. I could draw and I really enjoyed it. I found that, you know, too much, you concentrate and you forget about everything else because you're just concentrating on what you're drawing. And then I was asked to do uh, charity modelling for the kids' company by a boy I knew. And they said, oh, we've got a teacher. So I brought this same teacher and he brought a model along who I thought was just a model. And he was chatting to me and we made friends and that. And then it turns out he was an artist. And we sort of became really good friends. And he encouraged me to draw. First time he came around my house, he bought me a box of crayons. And that started my drawing career. It was all very, I'm a very lucky person in life. And then I got another friend 
was putting a show on and he's quite pushing. He went, will you draw the pictures for the programme? I went, oh, all right then. And then he said, oh, I'm going to get it in the Observer. I went, oh, my God. Well, I'm a bit embarrassed. So of course, it's Lucian Freud's moods, turns to art and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then so I thought it was going to be a corner, but it was like half a page. How embarrassed. And then someone wrote, oh, I've looked at her Twitter. It's her art, same thing like what she says. She must be useless. And that made me laugh so much. I put that on Facebook. And then a gallerist said, oh, do you want an art gal- uh, exhibition? And I'm a bit gullible. I went, oh, all right then. Not realising it was this huge gallery, absolutely enormous. But I still did it. Because I'm a bit like, I'm not as obviously as bright and as dedicated as Lee, but if I turn my hand to something, I can usually do it. And so I had this art exhibition. And then and it turns out I was their biggest selling artist as well. What drew you to St. Leonard's after so many years in London? Well, that was all a whim. But um, my friends, a couple of my friends had a holiday home in Canberra Sands. So I went to see them. And then another friend had moved to Hastings. So I went, oh, let's go and visit him, right? So we came here and we went to a little Kino Cafe in Norman Road. And I thought, oh, it looks nice here. Usually I've never dreamt of leaving London and I never like anywhere else. But I saw people, you know, people looking a bit quirky. I thought, I could be friends with those people. And then I looked on Right Move and I realised I could sell my grotty flat in Bethnal Green and get a magnificent one here. And so two days later, without even thinking about it, I just put my flat on the market. Moving to a place I'd only been to once, only knew two people who lived here. It was very bizarre. So I'm not really that kind of person. But it's the best decision I ever made. So it all worked out. <laughs> Amazing, and I've seen some pictures of your house in that, that Guardian interview, and um, it looks like you—it you, looks like an artist's house. Like you really just made it look. It's not like over the top, but it's very arty. It just looks fab. Oh, I know. I love my flat. People always say to me, "I look like an art teacher." And here as well, there's all these fantastic secondhand furniture shops. So mainly one called the French Depot. So I just kept going. I thought, oh my goodness! And so I just threw my IKEA furniture away and bought all new stuff. Well, old, new, old stuff that's so lovely and things I always wanted but never really dreamed I'd have. So all my life I've been dreaming of this flat. And when I was 60, I got it. Don't give up on your dreams. Tell us about your new art classes. So my friend Wayne Shires, who ran all the gay clubs in London, he moved down here as well. And so he's um, opened up several pubs here and that. And so I do art classes at his pub, of course, with the... um, you know, the lockdown, I couldn't do them, but I was doing them online. I love it here because they set, everyone's so creative and some local people set up their own little local television station to keep people amused in the um, lockdown. That was Isolation Station. But finally, at last, I'm going to start the art classes again next week at Trinity Townhouse, which is just by the pier. So people in St. Leonard's and Hastings will be able to come along and, and learn art from Sue Tilly? Yeah. And then I think later in the... In, February, I think, we're having an exhibition of the all the work that was done online in the Hastings Museum, which is very exciting. All these years later, you've got the 20th anniversary of, of Taboo coming up. How, how would you sum up Lee Bowery's legacy now? An inspiration to everyone of how to live your life. Don't be scared, don't be frightened, and do what you want to do. I'm so lazy, I shouldn't say it, but... Don't waste time. Just do what you want to do and make sure you do it. And don't let, don't let, don't take people who put you down. Don't pay any attention to them. You'll be right. 
A 20th anniversary performance of Taboo will be taking place at the London Palladium in January. You can also buy Sue Tilly's biography of Lee Bowery and you can even go along to one of her art classes in St. Leonard's.